Hey everybody, I'm Moon. And I'm Pyro. And we're two chicks talking shit. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, Moon here. So I just wanted to give you guys a heads up that this week's episode has actually been divided into two episodes because my segment is stupid fucking long because God forbid I talk. Um, but yeah, so look forward to a part two episode later this week and then we will be back to our regularly scheduled Monday episodes next week. So before we get started, we do need to mention that we're not licensed therapists, psychiatrists, or medical doctors in any way, shape, or form, so please do not come to us specifically if you're going through something rough. Please reach out to a licensed professional if you need help, and we'll provide some resources in our info for you. So I wanted to focus on like the history of mental health, as well as the history of like asylums and, you know, where we decided that we were going to put the quote unquote insane people and talk about their treatment and how we quote unquote treated and cured their mental illness because it, it's an interesting ride. It's an interesting ride. After the French Revolution, French physician Philippe Pinel, which is probably not how you say it, but I don't speak French. Uh, sounds good to me. I also don't speak French. <laughs> I apologize to all my French-speaking friends and audience. I'm going to butcher anything that I say in a language other than English, so especially French. <laughs> Philippe took over the Bisset, which was an insane asylum in France, and he actually forbid the use of chains and shackles. He removed patients from the dungeons that they were in. He provided them with sunny rooms and allowed them to exercise. But unfortunately, this didn't happen everywhere. A lot of patients were still very much mistreated. And that was interesting to me because like, now we know that the sun gives our brains happy juice. So for Philippe to almost know that back in the 1700s by giving these people sunny rooms to live in is really nice. So this was really cool. So there's a U.S. activist named Dorothea Dix that saw mentally ill people in Massachusetts, actually, both men and women of all ages, that they were not only incarcerated with criminals, but they were actually left unclothed and in darkness without heat or bathrooms. Jeez, how bad can you get? And like a lot of them were chained up and beaten. Over the next 40 years, she fought to establish 32 government-funded state hospitals for specifically for the mentally ill because that's the other thing is they were locked up with criminals yeah that's still not a good idea no they were put with people they shouldn't have been put with like you're not a criminal because you're mentally ill you know but back in the day they didn't agree with that so in 1808 the english government authorized the building of 20 insane asylums but by the end of the 1800s there were actually 120 of them 
Wow. So in less than 100 years, they built 120 of them, which is pretty cool. England only? Yeah, this is England only. And those asylums housed around 100,000 people. However, most of these places were described as a place of confinement and loss of hope. That's terrible. An inspector in 1893 mentioned that due to the conditions of the location that he had visited, which was Hanwell Asylum in London, that it would actually be astonishing to him if any cures were ever made. That's how bad the conditions were, in his opinion. Awful. So in 1883 is when mental illness was actually studied more scientifically. That's what I'm all about. Yeah, yeah. So it was studied by a German psychiatrist, Emil Kraepelin. So in 1883... I think that's how you say it. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Again, I I apologize to everyone because I can't pronounce shit, so we'll learn. Yeah, if you guys want to tell me exactly how to pronounce it, tell me. That would be great. I would appreciate yeah. it. Chris, make his name again. Yeah, I'll know for the future. Yeah, for but yeah, so he started distinguishing mental disorders separating them from each other wait wait so before this they didn't have any like diagnoses they just said if this person's acting abnormal throw them in and say it's yeah wow that's, yeah that's terrible they didn't have any sort of diagnosis so like they wouldn't you have anxiety you're a schizophrenic like they had nothing up until 1883 so subsequently obviously you know future research disproved a lot of his findings but fundamental distinction between manic depressive psychosis and schizophrenia is still used to this day which is almost 140 years later those are very different diagnoses yeah very very different things Manic depression is, is kind of what a lot of people kind of suffer from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas, like, schizophrenia is taken a lot more seriously and it's not nearly as common. Yeah. I believe schizophrenia is, like, maybe 2% of the population has but it schizophrenia. Has manic depressive um, traits to it. Yeah. That's the thing with a lot of mental illnesses is they have similar symptoms. Absolutely. Which makes diagnosing very difficult. Like, for me, for example, a lot of my my symptoms can pair with like bipolar disorder because I'm not only depressed I'm anxious and I have ADHD so all of those things put together in a blender making me can in some cases equal bipolar but yeah so 140 years later we are still using his fundamental distinction funny because we were just talking about how science is always changing mm -hmm. but in some cases it really doesn't change i think it goes back to like um, like a lot of like, theories and laws and stuff like those aren't going anywhere expand on them but like in, in biology things are always changing in psychology sometimes it's changing and sometimes it's still the same mm -hmm. yeah it's and it's crazy what people discover 140 years ago that makes such sense that we didn't have to develop on it much more you know yeah. what i mean Especially being so limited in technology, curious to see like how he came to those conclusions. Yeah, in 1883 is when yeah. he decided this is what schizophrenia is. That's crazy. So in 1948, so we're skipping forward almost 100 years, the first WHO International Congress on Mental Health took place in London. World Health Organization? Is that what they're talking about? Or yeah, the World Health Organization. So in 1948, they actually defined the difference between mental hygiene and mental health. 
know if I know what mental hygiene refers to. Mental hygiene refers to all the activities and techniques which encourage and maintain mental health. Gotcha. And mental health is the condition subject to fluctuations due to biological, social factors, which, you know, is how our brain works. So mental hygiene could be like, in today's terms, our self-care. Mental hygiene is, yeah, is self-care. Personal self-care, but just like, you know, even like external things like going to doctors and stuff like that will help with the, the mental health. Literally anything that you do to encourage your mental health positively and maintain it in a positive degree is mental hygiene. So, you know, taking your meds every day, taking your vitamins every day, exercising, anything that makes your brain happy is mental hygiene. We don't encourage addiction, obviously. It's not an activity that we would encourage to keep a positive mental outlook. And this is my uneducated opinion looking into it. The origin of the mental hygiene movement can actually be attributed to the work of Clifford Beers. Speaking of alcohol abuse. Speaking of alcohol abuse, <laughs> awkwardly enough. So he published a book in 1908 called A Mind That Found Itself, which I actually started reading. I never finished, um, but what I have read is really good, and I can't okay. wait to finish it. I highly recommend anyone read it. I think I got it for my Kindle for like $2 because it's an old-ass book. But essentially, the book is based off of his personal experience into the admissions of three mental hospitals. A patient? As a patient, yes. Okay. He explains why he went downhill and why he was admitted, and that's essentially how far that I've gotten into the book. Um, I have yet to read his experience, but from what I've understood, it's not a positive one. He does say that he was mentally turned around after, like, the third admission, which is why he wrote the book. In a good way? Yeah, like in a positive way, like he was able to realize his mental status and be able to positively affect it and work on his mental hygiene. Nice. Okay. So that same year that the book was published, a mental hygiene society was established in Connecticut, okay. where he is actually from as well. Oh, cool. So the term mental hygiene was suggested to Beers by a psychiatrist that he knew called Adolf Mayer. So Clifford didn't actually like coin the term. He was told of the term and explained to what it was, but it was attributed to the book that he published on why it got so much traction. So in 1909 is when the National Commission of Mental Hygiene was created. So at this point, like the late 1800s, the early 1900s is where everything kind of just took off and where we've started focusing a lot more on mental health and getting people the right help, at least to how we thought we were supposed to back then. That's good. Which we will learn later on what yeah, that was. Yeah. So from 1919 onwards, the internationalization of the National Committee of Mental Hygiene actually led to the establishment of other national associations that were concerned with mental hygiene. So France and South Africa actually um, established some in 1920, and Italy and Hungary ended up establishing in 1924. 
So the movement, the mental hygiene movement, was focused around the improvement of care for the mentally ill because we we realized, you know, how brutal we were and uh, how abusive and neglectful we were to people that were admitted to asylums. And, you know, we were, we essentially were like, you know what, this is not okay. <laughs> we can't, these, this is not how you treat people. So asylums were where people, for anyone who's not aware, asylums are where they sent people with mental disorders. They were sent there allegedly for treatment, but in many cases it was actually to remove them from the view of their families and communities because the stigma attached to mental illness was not something that was positive. Which Like Lacey Fletcher's parents. Yeah, which I was just going <laughs> to say, which leads me back to Lacey Fletcher's parents. But yeah, so the stigma attached to mental illness is what actually led to a lot of people being institutionalized because people were like, you're fucking crazy. I don't want people to see how fucking crazy you are because, you know, you think the sky is green and it's not green or, you know, you eat food funny or you don't like food that other people like, you know, like just weird things yeah. that are not normal in the society of the 1900s would get you institutionalized, which is crazy. I actually have a list that we can go over later in the episode of certain things that that people were quote-unquote committed for yeah so in the early 1900s is when psychoanalytical therapies became like the primary treatment of neurotic mental disorders and psychosis so essentially what those they called them like talking cures which is what you see now as like therapy you know okay yeah like you sit one-on-one -on -one and you talk your shit out essentially. So this was actually based off of theories um, from Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. And actually, society now still treats those with psychosis, including schizophrenia, with custodial care and stuff like this. In 1946 is when President Harry Truman signed the National Mental Health Act which essentially called for the National Institute of Mental Health to conduct research into the mind, the brain, and the behavior in hopes to reduce mental illness. So it's wild to me that it took this long to build something to, to research it. Yeah. Like, we touched on everything, but not to the degree that Harry Truman was like, no, we gotta, we gotta do this. However many centuries, even. Right. And as a result of this law, the National Institute of Mental Health was formally established on April 15th, 1949. So that's actually three years later. It took three years to establish the NIMH. That same year, Australian psychiatrist J.F.J. Cade introduced the use of lithium to treat psychosis. So prior to this, bromides and barbiturates had been used to sedate patients and, you know, essentially like quiet them down and make them easier to manage. But they were ineffective in treating like the basic symptoms of psychosis, which is where the lithium came in. And it actually... Is it lithium still today? In some cases it is. It's not widely used because we have so many other prescription drugs to treat it, thanks to science. But yeah, in some cases it is still used, which boggles my mind. So mid-1960s is when 
the lithium actually gained traction and was used to treat manic depression, which we now call bipolar disorder. That's right. In the 1950s is when antipsychotic drugs were actually introduced that didn't cure psychosis. They realized it was something that we can't necessarily cure, but we can treat its symptoms. I have a good question. Classified as psychosis. Any sort of mental health problem? Psychosis is, in a definition sense, it's a mental disorder characterized by like a disconnection. Um, so it's disruptions to like a person's thoughts or and perceptions that make it difficult for them to recognize what is real and what isn't. So, like, seeing, hearing, believing things that either aren't real or are strange or, like, having persistent thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. The first major class of antipsychotics was discovered in France in 1952. It's named chlorpromazine which is also the brand-specific name, I believe, is Thorazine. And so studies from then showed that 70% of patients with schizophrenia actually improved on those drugs, which is a great improvement. However, in that same decade, the 1950s, the number of hospitalized people, both in Europe and America, skyrocketed. In England and Wales, there were 7,000 patients in 1850. By 1930, it was 120,000, wow. and it was nearly 150,000 by 1954. Do you think it skyrocketed because of Truman's NIMH to kind of uh, establish these diagnoses a little bit better, so that people thought they had them, or the members who thought that they had those disorders give them the excuse to admit them? Guys? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it might have had some something to do with it, especially in the U.S. I'm not 100% sure or why why it peaked in like England and stuff as well. So, like other countries followed suit after Truman signed it. Oh, possibly. And we'll discuss it later, but a lot of times you didn't actually need to provide evidence that someone was crazy. You could just say they were crazy and you could get them committed. So I'll speak a little bit on that later as well. In the United States, we actually had over a half million people that were institutionalized in 1955 which is insanity to me mm -hmm. granted like i know now like how many people have some sort of mental illness but it's just wild so in the 1950s as well is when behavior therapy was developed which was essentially a way that people could be trained to overcome their phobias specifically only phobias for what i've noticed because it's behavior therapy because they used it as like exposure therapy okay because they were like, if we expose you to what you're afraid of, you won't necessarily be afraid of it anymore, which isn't necessarily the case. It works sometimes, but not all the time. It works sometimes, but not all the time. Like, it definitely depends on what it is that you're scared of and the person, for sure. In the 1960s, they actually started removing people from institutions, and they started opening mental health homes and facilities and started putting them there. That are more personal? Yeah. This is when, like, they had a lot of drugs that were able to help with the symptoms so it actually led to a drop in the number of institutionalized people um, and it was a huge drop it went from 
you know, 560,000 to 130,000 in 1980. So in 30 years, we got over 400,000 people out back into the world. So because of the drugs that we had, it was able to, you know, help those people live more successfully and independently. But this also led to a rise in homelessness because all of these people were essentially housed in these facilities. So when we, you know, let them all go, spread your little wings, baby bird, there was a lack of adequate housing and follow-up care for these people. So they ended up... And even now it's really bad, right? Yeah. Homelessness is very bad. There was, you know, a lack of housing, which, you know, led all these people to become homeless. In the 1980s, an estimated one-third of all homeless people are considered seriously mentally ill, and a vast majority of them are actually schizophrenic. Wow. That's crazy. I, I, I gotta stop saying crazy. Um, I thought that you said it's supposed to be rare, isn't it? But that's the thing. Because if the disorder is so debilitating that you can't help but become homeless because it's so hard to manage if you don't have that help. Exactly. Which is why such a large population of the homeless people are schizophrenic is because they don't have the necessary support that they would need to do that. So in 1992, they surveyed American jails. This is interesting. And reported that 7.2% of inmates are mentally ill in some shape or form. Okay. Meaning that 100,000 mentally ill people in 92 were incarcerated. It doesn't seem as, as bad, but then you think about how many people are just in jail. Yeah. Especially in the 1990s, like, like the drug epidemic. And that's the thing is there was, there was a lot of things going on in the 90s. And actually a quarter of them weren't actually charged with anything. Mm -hmm. They were just awaiting a bed in a psychiatric hospital. And this is the only place that they could put them was jail. That's terrible. Which is just wild to me. We have nowhere to put you, so we're going to put you with a bunch of people that have been jailed for crimes, essentially, yeah. you know? Before we get into reasons that people are actually committed to an asylum, I wanted to discuss Australia and their interesting history on mental health. So in 1838 in Sydney, the Tarbin Creek Lunatic Asylum was opened. Originally, it was built for 60 patients, but by 1844, there were 148 of them. In May of 1849, a patient fractured the skull of another patient with a chamber pot. Do you know what a chamber pot is? It's where you go to the bathroom. Yes. Yeah. It's essentially a portable potty. Yeah. So he hit him over the head with a toilet. <laughs> um, I don't mean to laugh. It's just, it's just funny, you know? Yeah. He did die, uh, but it wasn't for six or seven weeks. A medical board inquired on this and were like, what the, f what the fuck? Like, how did you let this happen? And they ended up laying the blame for the deaths squarely on conditions at the asylum. Another incident in 1843, um, trigger warning here, by the way, uh, sexual assault. It was discovered that two of the male keepers were sexually assaulting female patients. So it actually, once it was discovered, they ended up being arrested and imprisoned. No one knows like how many they actually and whatever. There's said to be more than a thousand corpses buried under this asylum. 
This is all in one place. This is all in one place. Australia. Get your act together. It's fucking wild to me. <laughs> and then there's another place in Australia called Callan Park. And in July 1900, a former patient of this asylum actually told a Sydney newspaper that the nurses were inhumane creatures. And that they treated patients most cruelly. Like, they were awful. They recounted having their hair pulled until their nose bled. How does that even happen? Right? How does someone pull your hair, cause your nose to bleed? I don't know. That's intense. It's just, it's wild to me how how much they got away with because the mentally ill weren't necessarily considered human. So they felt like they didn't have to treat them like humans like you would anyone else it's for lack of a better word crazy As usual, we are not mental health professionals, and we encourage you to reach out to someone if you need help. One resource we recommend is Ostara Coaching, run by our dear friend Sean. Sean is a licensed life coach and is very intelligent, intuitive, and a great listener, and can help you with a variety of concerns regarding mental health. His Instagram is at Ostara Coaching, and he is available for booking a session. And if you tell him we referred you, he'll give you 50% off your first session while supporting the podcast at the same time. So I've actually <laughs> been working with Sean for a few months now. Oh, that's and awesome. He has been an absolute, like, amazing resource to just, like, talk about my shit, my past mm-hmm. traumas, my emotions, even, like, present day stuff. It's just nice to have a outsider perspective on how I feel and Mm -hmm. like have someone to explain it to but yeah he's been great so I definitely highly highly recommend working with him for sure that's awesome I'm so happy you're getting help from him he's so supportive and such a good listener to talk about anything without being judgmental so yeah I definitely recommend him yeah for sure again his Instagram is at Ostara Coaching that's O-S-T-A-R-A Coaching and we highly recommend him for dealing with many aspects of mental health kind of wanted to dive into like some of uh careers surrounding conservation so i want to ask you a question okay i feel like i'm always going to ask you a question just because like i want to hear your opinion since you don't know much about conservation uh we'll see what you think about it when you think of a job in conservation what comes to mind what kind of work um i like when i first think of it i think of like like a researcher, like oh, scientist okay. that like yeah. researches conservation and how to better it and fix what we're doing wrong with conservation and make it better, I guess. Okay. Okay. Do you think that they focus on like a really big scale problem or is it really small? Um, I, I would think that they focus on like something small. Okay. So that way they can devote more time to it. Yeah. yeah um, and they have like sm- like a bunch of small teams that focus on things rather than one one team that focuses on all the things. I think that's valid to say. Yeah. 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 I think that's that's a really good definition of um, 
one career in conservation. And I think it's one that, like, most people think. I think another one is uh, when people think about, you know, saving the planet, they think of, like, tree huggers. Oh, yes. Like, hippies and, uh, you know, people, like, trekking out into the field in rain boots and overalls to, like, collect frogs at three in the morning, which is also very valid. People definitely do that. Yes. I that would be kind of a good description of, of uh, a researcher or spe- uh, specifically like a conservation biologist. Remember, we were talking about the subdivisions. We were talking about biology in general and biodiversity. That would be under that subdivision. So when I was reading through some of the careers, I didn't realize just, just how expensive it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a list of like 15 different careers. Oh, okay. That kind of all range in like responsibility. And I didn't go into detail about like what's required, but I think I could kind of figure out what kind of degrees or experiences required for a lot of these. Okay. So I think, you know, if people are interested in, in conservation but don't really know how to get started, having a good idea of what kind of jobs are out there uh, to fit your passion and what you're, you're good at. And then also, like, kind of one of the, the more common ones that people have heard about is um, a wildlife biologist. Kind of like a researcher, but researchers are more uh, focused on, like, the academic, you know, the strictly learning. Um, you know, they're the ones that, like, write papers and do research with a team and just kind of they have a hypothesis that they're trying to prove whereas a wildlife biologist they you know they do go out in the field still but they study animal behaviors look at the interactions between different species maybe collecting data for populations and things like that so their work is really important so that we can kind of get an idea of okay this the, the monarch butterfly for example is going extinct we've only been able to find a small percentage of a population here in this area so like they're the ones that get that data so that we can kind of come up with a plan on how to save it so they're a really important job right there because without that we wouldn't we wouldn't have that data to decide oh crap we need to pass some laws to save the monarch butterflies they'll also present their findings to the scientific community and they can get grants to put towards um, passing laws or coming up with new ideas to save those populations and preserve the habitats that they live in, things like that. There's also a horticulturist. Do you know what a horticulturist is? That's the one with plants, right? Yeah, yeah. So they work with plants. Um, These ones, these guys work to design ecological landscapes. Uh, They can promote sustainable pesticide-free growing, which I didn't know about. Managing green spaces like parks and forests and things like that. They run nurseries and garden centers, uh, and they can also work with towns and cities to be more green. So they're kind of working in the wild, but also with like humans as well to kind of keep and kind of bring awareness to the, the. natural issues that um, are in the same area as humans. So, like, if you live in a pretty green community, the things that you do to be a little bit more sustainable and protect the area you live in. So there's also something, I didn't know about this one, but I knew it existed, but I didn't really know that it was called this or what really they were in charge of. And they're called sustainability coordinators. Um, And these people are hired by governments, businesses, institutions like schools, um, and their responsibility is to uh, help to is to help their piece of work um, perform their activities in a more sustainable manner. So if you think about like colleges that have a garden, uh, like a food bank that you can go out to and collect food and things like that, they, these are the people that would uh, find out you know what their budget is for their place of work, what kind of things that they could do to alteration. Uh, these would be the places that the 
they would use the budget and find out what kind of alterations they can make to be a little bit more green sustainable. So they work very heavily working with people. So the sustainability uh, coordinators, like I said, they might help garden that, the, like if it was at a university, for example. So um, the university I went to had a food garden that if people, like students, were struggling to have food, like most college students do, actually freely go to this garden and they just pick out whatever vegetables and fruits that were growing. They would also work to include recycling at schools, whether it be having different like trash cans to like separate out your recyclables. And it's just kind of encourage um, people to be a little bit more green when they're on campus or at work or things like that. So I think those are incredibly important. Um, one thing I want to talk about later in the podcast is this idea of um, individual change by bring, uh, to be more green versus uh, systemic change, bigger places of work, factories, corporations, things like that, and just how important it is uh, that both kind of interact together. So I think that sustainability coordinator is a really good example of that. It's one person or a small group of people who work to make their entire organization more sustainable, uh, more eco-friendly, things like that. And those are going to make the biggest amounts of change. Um, we talked about uh, the conservation scientist or kind of researcher. Um, so they might do more management in the quality of land or a lake, something like that. They might evaluate data on forest or soil quality, assess damage to trees and forest lands caused by fire and log activities. Um, and these people can also do something called controlled burning. Yeah, I don't know if it happens much here in California where, you know, we're such a dry state already that any amount of fire can be really detrimental if it gets out of hand. But controlled burning is basically just when people who maybe like firefighters, they actually choose a specific area of land covered in um, brush, like trees, grass, bushes, things like that. They are the perfect fuel for a big fire to happen. They'll actually um, controllably burn that area. And what it does is it kind of creates this, for lack of a better word, it's like a barrier where the fire can't actually continue on from one area to the other. It's basically like putting up a wall, or in this case, a lack of a wall, but just a space where the fire can't actually spread. So it's control burning. And it's actually really, really valuable because without it, these fires would just burn out of control. So these uh, conservation scientists would actually take care of that. I think that's a really cool field to get into. Yeah, they'll also focus on how to harvest resources without um, doing too much environmental damage. Obviously, we need resources to survive. Um, but at the rate we're going now, these resources are running out very quickly. And so finding a better way to harvest them without destroying the ecosystem is super duper important. So there's a lot of research being done with that, whether it's cutting down trees or saving trees that are still growing and not cutting them down till later. One career that I even considered going into, my, my friend told, told me about it and thought that I would be a good fit for it, is something called an ecological consultant. Because, uh, they, they have a range of services and, and tasks that they work with with humans and with nature. They can work for the forest or water quality management or even species specific work. So my understanding of it, a consultant works by being kind of contracted out from, uh, and I'm going to use kind of an example. So say, for instance, a Walmart, we'll take Walmart, for example, mm -hmm. wants to build a building in a brand new area that's not been flattened out or cleared of brush or anything like that. It's like a whole natural land. Not protected, but like people can still build on it. It just hasn't been built yet. 
Um, before they're uh, allowed to build in this area, they'll call out an ecological consultant who's been trained to recognize the species of that area. They'll look at the water or the soil quality. They'll look at the trees that are there. And they'll actually do some really detailed work to see if Walmart was allowed to build on their land, what would be the environmental damage from it. And then they'll decide if they should build there or not. For example, if there was a rare plant species that grew on that land, clearly Walmart would not be allowed to build there. Like that. Um, and I have a, a really specific example, actually. When I was working at the wildlife center that I worked at, we actually were able to get six prairie dogs from, I think it was from Texas. Mm-hmm. And these prairie dogs were actually living on a field that I think a Walmart was going to be built on. I think that's why the example came to my mind. And so they had someone come out to, to like review the land to make sure it was safe to build on. And this lady, the consultant, I think is who she was, she found hundreds of prairie dog tunnels in, on that land. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why they did just choose to build a Walmart somewhere else. What ended up happening was they kind of evacuated all the prairie dogs they like pulled them out of their homes and then she had hundreds of these guys living in her own house oh god she, i know i can imagine they, they were like babies they're like a little bit they're tiny and so she would actually reach out to zoos and other sanctuaries and things like that to ask if they wanted to house any of these prairie dogs um and so we ended up taking six of them we got five females and a male um so we got these little babies. They're so, so cute. I don't remember any of their names, but uh, we had to like raise, socialize them. And they're really, really cute. They're like, you like hold them in your hand and then just like pet their tummy and they would like fall asleep. They're really sweet. We really had to socialize them because, you know, if they bite you, like, like that's a rodent bite and happening again. They've actually bit by one and like got infected and stuff. It worked really hard to, to socialize. Not ecological consultant. Um, so sometimes, you know, it works where they actually tell people, you know, you actually can't build here because there's an endangered species or a really rare plant or an animal here or this tree is 300 years old. You're not going to tear it down. So they're the ones that make those decisions. So I think that was always a really cool line of work. Um, I think another cool field that works for a lot of people, but I think people don't think about it as being used for conservation is photography and filmmaking. Uh, hey. Because it brings awareness to the public, you know, mm-hmm. if you think about people who are really intelligent about animals and species and ecology in general, like David Attenborough, for example, Steve Irwin, you know, without the work that they've put in, uh, we wouldn't know about these species in general, and then you get to learn all about them as well. I didn't do the research on this, but it was just something that I was thinking about in terms of why it might not be a good field for some people. It's because anyone can do it. You don't need to have a degree or anything like that, or even just knowledge in general to go out and take pictures and videos of, of animals. You don't, you see it all over on social media where people like rescue sea turtles or like pick up a dolphin or a shark and, you know, it might be really cute and cuddly, but then, you know, you're not sending a good message to people. So right. it might encourage people to want to try and do that themselves and risk uh, hurting that animal. And then some people aren't knowledgeable and could just be like spreading misinformation and things like that. Right. Okay, one really good example, a lot of people like him and I really dislike him. His name, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
anyways. His name is Coyote Peterson. Have you heard of him? Mm-mm. Okay, you've probably seen some of his, his videos. He's the guy that intentionally finds dangerous animals in the wild and then, like, gets bit or stung by them and record. And sometimes he's, like, super over the top with his reactions. He's really quite knowledgeable, and for the most part, his statements are quite factual. But the way he presents the knowledge, like, to bring about these dangerous animals and then prove how dangerous they are, but then also, like, deciding to get bit or stung by them, I think it encourages a lot of stupidity for people to try these things. And then it's just fear-mongering. And I think that's a really big thing we need to steer away from is, you know, these animals, you know, they're just defending themselves. They're not trying to be aggressive, just trying to protect themselves and get into their business and into their home. So I feel like there's a lot of, uh, especially now that social media is so big and, you know, you can record really good things on your cell phone even. Mm-hmm. Uh, there can be a lot of a lot of issues with photography and filmmaking. But I think, you know, people do it responsibly. It can be uh, really cool because, you know, you get to see all these creatures that you've never seen before. Yeah, I follow a lot of, um, like, animal accounts on, like, Instagram and stuff. And it's just so cool that, like, some photographers can get pictures of, like, these animals, like, super close. I saw a video of them of someone like taking pictures of like meerkats and they like came up and like got really close to the camera and like got on top of the camera and like got on top of the photographer and it's just it's just a cool experience for sure yeah i like the the photographers that are very respectful towards nature you know they're not there to like cause a riot or a reaction of the animal they're just there to get their work very peaceful I think that's a really good way to go about it. You know, trying to coax an animal to do something or trying to pick up an animal. Or if you think about, like, like Yellowstone, for example, people hopping out of their cars to feed a bear and, like, get a video of it. That kind of stuff just inspires stupidity and it's unsafe for the animals for the most part. Like, when it comes to, like, feeding animals in particular, a lot of the time, rangers will have to go out and go find that animal and put them down. They didn't actually hurt anybody, but because they're starting to learn to depend on people for food and be comfortable around around people it's just putting everybody at risk she reminded me of another another situation so here in california we have uh, poppy fields uh where we're known in one of our valleys they're beautiful if you look up california poppies they're the hills are just a rainbow of orange and purple and yellow and it's really quite beautiful and people would love to come to the poppy fields and take some photos which is totally cool you know bring awareness and you know take some really pretty pictures and what a lot of people do is, you know, they'll take photos of themselves laying in these fields or like jumping up in these fields of flowers and then just totally crushing it. And I've seen photos of uh, what the fields look like after like the spring is done before the flowers like wilt. And the flowers are just absolutely destroyed. There's trash everywhere. Flowers are just broken, just squished out into the ground. And it's really unfortunate that people were doing that just for their own Instagram photos. So. Right. Definitely a good way to, to go about taking photos, especially like selfies and things that can do so in a non-disturbing way. I think people only think about the animals, but uh, I think even less so people think about uh, plants that they're disturbing too. So I think definitely, you know, there's a lot of resources that people can look up on how to safely take nature photographs or videos that'll do it in a way without harming the environment, keeping everybody safe, things like that. I think that if, if people follow through with that, uh, I just wanted to list a couple more things. So definitely like uh, there's a technology aspect to conservation. Uh, you know, it can go into engineering where people are trying to find alternatives for more sustainable options when it comes to like um, solar power, wind power, things like that. So you can go into more um, engineering, physics, 
field rather than biology. Wildlife veterinarian, so obviously, you know, some animals in the wild, especially animals that get injured by people, you know, definitely need help. Zookeeping, which is what I ended up doing, which is a great field. It's a very competitive field. I think a lot of people don't think about that. So when I tell people I was a zookeeper, they're like, oh, that was my, that, that's my dream job. I'm like, it takes a lot to get there. <laughs> Not pay very well. No. Um, but it, you know, it was very rewarding. You know, we worked for something called the Species Survival Plan. Oh, and I have a current event. Our wildlife center worked for something called a species survival plan. And basically what it is, is a program to help breed the animals that you have in your facility. And then you can actually trade them with other animals in other zoos to keep the gene flow really diverse. So basically when you have a group of animals, obviously you don't want the animals to inbreed because that causes their genes to, you know, you can get mutations, you can get weaker animals. And if you're trying to save a population, the goal is that you keep that gene flow really large and diverse. And so what you do is you exchange animals with other zoos so that they're never inbreeding. They're never with their siblings or with their parents because we've had a couple instances where we had a we had our porcupines in the program and uh, some of our porcupines mated with each other several times. Oh no. Yeah. Dirty so, porcupines. So dirty. They're so horny too. It's ridiculous. <laughs> if you've ever seen a porcupine penis, it's it's something. I <laughs> go look it up, but also don't. Are they um, just as horny as koalas and dolphins? Porcupine was very horny that we had to keep him. His name was Gus Gus, and we had to keep him separate from the other females because he was always trying to mate. So we keep him with our older female who was like never having it. I don't think it happened or it ended up happening, and we were like, oh wow, he's he actually is fertile. Yeah, we actually thought he was infertile for a while. So yeah, so you always want to keep the gene the the gene pool. I'm sorry, I keep saying gene pool, a uh, gene flow, but I say I'm meaning gene pool. So, speaking of the certain species survival plan, uh, we had our porcupines in this plan, and we had our armadillos in this plan. Three banded armadillos, they're really, really cute. And we also had our two-toed sloths in this plan. And I just found out recently, they posted on their, in, on their Facebook, so if you look up uh, Wildlife Learning Center in, in Silmar, you'll actually get to see the pictures. Uh, our two sloths just had a baby. Mm, I know. I'm so happy. This sloth, this sloth has been in the species survival plan for years, and none of the females ever wanted him uh, until now. And they just had a baby. I don't remember what the name is, but it is very, very cute. Um, so yeah, it can be a really rewarding experience, especially when you have animals that are, that are breeding, that are improving their population levels. Um, yeah, it's very cool. And then you also get that whole uh, educational uh, aspect, like what I was talking about earlier. And that's the really satisfying part for me, is being able to talk about these animals and education and bring awareness to them. And I can say that more than a handful of times have I ha changed people's opinions about um certain animals like reptiles specifically or like tarantulas especially the creepy crawlies and we'll go in, go into that a lot um change people's minds about those and about zoos in general zoos get a lot of slack about keeping animals in captivity and i, I want to do a whole episode on the good that they can bring yeah and that's the thing is like zoos aren't what they used to be zoos I mean, I won't disagree. Like, some zoos were very shitty and, like, they, they didn't oh, take proper care of animals. So, 
Um, I totally get the apprehension that a lot of people have around zoos, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's not like that anymore. And a lot of zoos yeah. put forth effort to protect species and, you know, breed them. Like, look at, like, the giant pandas, you know? Like, they were endangered for a while, um, oh, yeah. and now because... You know, most of the population is in captivity because they're not smart. Uh, <laughs> not smart at all. Um, but they're, I mean, they're still like critical, but they're not as endangered as they were because, you know, humans and sanctuaries and zoos are doing what they can to protect them. Yeah, I'm going to do not a whole episode, but we'll periodically get into some of the success stories that animals and other species have gotten population-wise. And zoos are responsible for a big percentage of them. The work that they do can be really, really rewarding. You know, a lot of the time, especially now, you know, we're not taking animals out of the wild to put them on display for people. I know that's how it used to be, um, but we've really changed our laws since then. Um, and giving them better homes and things like that. And I think just in general, yes, these animals are in captivity, but they're no longer fending for their lives. They're not fighting against other predators. They're not fighting for food from each other. They're not having to find shelter. They have access to medicine and health care and things like that. So, yes, we might not be giving them the space that they need, and we try to do that but we are giving them all these other things that they no longer have to worry about. So they can really do a lot of conservation. A lot of animals that are in zoos um, and like rehab centers and sanctuaries can't go back into the wild. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Sometimes their habitats are just gone. Right. Or uh, if a lot of the time, like the animals that I worked with were all pets. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to survive in the wild. They're like a regular dog or a cat. They don't know how to find food, how to hunt, how to protect themselves against predators. Right. So if we were to just throw them out into the wild, they would not survive. Right. So zoo is the next best chance at at living a a happy, healthy life. And speaking of happiness, uh, zoos do give enrichment to their animals. So if an animal looks bored, it's definitely not bored. It's just sleeping. (laughs) But that's like a, a big criteria is giving enrichment to animals to keep them from getting so a lot of times people don't understand that so mm. yeah these are really really important so i think it's you know there's a lot of ways that people can get into the zookeeping field most of the time they do require um some sort of degree but a lot of the time they have internships for people who are pursuing a degree and want that experience um there's a lot of volunteer opportunities if you kind of want to work with animals but you know you don't have that criteria yet um so it's it's much more open to the public as a career or as a side gig or something like that versus like obviously the vet's job or like uh, working in technology things like that so i think it's a, a good way for the public to get involved working in a zoo or just going to the zoo that the public can just go to and learn and become more aware whereas with like the science for example you have to read the paper you know you can yeah. just go out to the field and collect your own research or your own data so, mm-hmm. um, there's also conservation fundraising and lobbying for conservation, something that, uh, again, other people can really get into to make a difference. Um, political conservation, this is a, a little more up there in terms of criteria, but criteria, but just as important. Um, it's working to pass laws and regulations that'll help protect the different aspects of the planet, like national parks, forests, 
coral reefs, things like that, uh, protecting specific organisms. And so they're the ones that actually pass regulations. So I think that they would more likely work with the Environmental Protection Agency to say, hey, this species is uh, being hunted too much. We need to pass a law that says you cannot hunt this animal anymore. So they're the ones that would focus on that or you know, collecting certain fish or sizes of fish. They're the ones that actually pass regulations and then um, also enforce them. Um, aside, it's not, I don't, I don't know if I would call this a career and it's kind of weird to talk about, but the last one I have is, um, an anti poaching career. Okay. Um, so people can actually work as like bounty hunters in a sense, mm-hmm. um, especially in places where animals are actively being hunted, um, i.e. elephants and rhinos in Africa. Um, you know, a lot of people are hunting these, these animals for their tusks. Or um, the most uh, post animal right now actually is the pangolin, kind of like scaled. They look like a scaled anteater, I think is what they're common in. They are on the brink of extinction because of poaching. A lot of people want their meat, um, food, or for medicine, the scales for medicine. I don't remember the number. I think it's like, ooh, I don't even want to guess, but it's like 10,000 every few minutes or something like that. It's a ridiculous amount. Um, and so people who are devoted to protecting these animals will actually go out and stop the poachers from hunting these animals. Um, I don't know how involved it is, but I know, uh, they can, you know, they're, they're more like ex-military people that can, can, that have that kind of training. Um, and they'll actually like go out into the wild and like stop poachers who are like actively trying to hunt animals. So it's a little bit more of a, aggressive form of conservation but it helps because poaching is like one of those really big issues it's funny because like as soon as you mentioned like anti-poaching career my brain literally went to that like sea shepherd organization sea shepherd i don't think it's that one um it was around mid to late 2000s okay um so they are, or they were, I don't know if they're still around. Um, they were a marine conservation activism organization. Okay. Um, and they actually like would boat around in like Japanese waters yeah. to like protect whales. Yeah. Um, from, from poachers specifically? Yeah. From um, wow. like the Japanese like whaling industry, because it, I don't know if it still is, but it was a huge thing over there. Mm-hmm. So they were, they would like be over there and just cause a scene essentially yeah. in hopes to protect whales, you know? Yeah. So it took place on sea and on land. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, those are a handful. I Definitely not all of the careers uh kind of focused in uh, conservation i know um i think i kind of went into a bulk of them but they do break down into very specific things you know obviously there's people that focus on plants and animal plants different kinds of animals different types of environments things like that so there's a, there's a lot of work out there so i think i think if, if for example everybody cared about the environment there'd probably be a job for somebody like there's just some kind of aspect that would work out for everybody's passion, whether it's technology, whether it's working with animals, teaching, um, working in a veterinary or a medical kind of field, working in anti-poaching and being able to hold a gun. There's kind of careers for everybody. So I think it's important to know that you know, people can get involved very easily, whether it's just you know lobbying or fundraising for a conservation goal, which is what I try to do, 
um, and then going as far as getting into a, a scientific field or teaching or developing some kind of new equipment. It's not just going out into the wilderness. Yeah, I'll, I'll link some different resources that people can get into uh, to see like what kind of jobs are out there or what, what would work best for what you're passionate about. And as always, we know some of these topics can get pretty heavy, so please do us a favor and get up, do your favorite form of self-care, get some water, stretch your legs, touch some grass, and have a kick-ass day, and we'll see you next time on Two Chicks Talking Shit. Bye! Bye! Bye.